You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air, and I appear with always typical lydia today's show we're going to be doing the 1970 classic vampire lovers by hammer productions it is a classic this time too Mm-hmm. for real highly regarded now in the last few no that's not even true throughout the episodes of this show lydia as you undoubtedly know sometimes i pepper references to hammer horror into the episodes because things remind me of other things or I'll refer back to Hammer. And I refer to Hammer a lot in some of my written reviews, particularly when I was talking about certain eras of film. Or certain genres. How could you talk about vampires without talking about Hammer? Exactly. Now, I know some of our listeners are just like, I like Freddy and Jason and I don't fucking give a shit about your old fucking gothic castles and spiderwebs movies wes wes (laughs) i know i know they're not for everybody but hammer is important and hammer is important because they straight up without exaggerating saved horror films back in the day when horror movies became the big noise are we talking universal yes we're talking about the universal era yeah even mgm had a bunch of hits under their belt in the 30s. I mean, people thought these movies were so shocking that they had to have warnings in front of them. They had to, you had to prepare yourselves. The thrills, chills, and spills of these trailers were not lies. People would faint in the theater at the idea of digging up a cadaver and constructing a monster to fly in the face of God. So blasphemous, so evil, so wicked. Clutch your pearls. Clutch your pearls. I almost wore a pearl so I could clutch them. <laughs> well, I almost wore some frilled cuffs. Oh, well. Uh, I really just like took some doilies and stapled them. It was a mess. Anyway, so just like any sort of trend in horror, it falls out of fashion. By the time the late 40s were rolling around, Universal had become dated, formulaic. People weren't being frightened by this, and especially by the 50s. I mean, for fuck's sake, like, they were on Saturday morning matinees. You could go see Dracula and Frankenstein if you cared, which a lot of people didn't anymore. Just like in the same way that we take some of our iconic horror characters from the 90s or the 80s, and and we're like, well, that's not scary anymore. Who cares? Who's afraid of Freddy Krueger anymore? Nobody. It's the same thing with... The Wolfman and Dracula and all that shit. People just aren't afraid of it. And even if you tell a terrifying tale involving these characters, it can't be Dracula. Because if it's Dracula, you're just like, blah. Yeah, during the war, you don't want to watch war movies. But after the war, you can watch war movies and car chases. And you're not so interested in these distractions. And then another war hits and horror becomes popular again. Universal didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Because... It got to the point where washed-up comedians, Abbott and Costello, and washed-up movie icons, Frankenstein and the Mummy and the Wolfman, Dracula, were just appearing in films together. They, they had completely crossed over into comedy. And I know people out there like the Abbott and Costello meet whatever movies. 
I think they're horrendous. Yeah, I'm not a fan either. But I'm not a big Abbott and Costello fan. I'm the only man child I like to watch. I can't watch <laughs> other people do it. <laughs> then all of a sudden, Hammer came out of nowhere. I mean, they've been around since the 30s, but they decided to toss their hat in. So they came out in 1957 with The Curse of Frankenstein. And it was... Mary Shelley's story was always in the public domain. But Universal kind of felt like they owned that. Or at least not the technical story of the modern-day Prometheus, but the uh, certainly elements that existed in the movie, they would not let Hammer just produce things that directly reference it. So they went over everything with a fine-tooth comb and threatened litigation over and over again. The Curse of Frankenstein became a massive fucking hit. And then Universal was kind of like, fuck. And how did Hammer do it? Well, it was in color. Yeah, big draw right there. It was more violent than anyone had really ever seen, especially for gothic horror. Yeah. The last scene, uh, the, uh, some of the scenes in uh, Frankenstein, and then, of course, more famously, uh, Dracula that came out the next year, or Horror of Dracula as it's known in the West, Christopher Lee's staking scene is off the charts gory for the time, so much so that a lot of the versions that you can get your hands on are cut. It's not even the uncut version that we're fucking watching. And then, of course, that proceeded with The Mummy. And also, it was sexier. Oh. Way sexier. God. Not as sexy as later Hammer Horror. Not as sexy far. as... But way fucking sexier way than anything se- Universal could have ever dreamt. Yeah. It was hip and fresh again. And the audiences ate it up. Hammer Horror almost overnight became the premier place to get your thrills, chills, and spills. And they did it all... With the old properties, they did it all with castles and cobwebs and old horror staples. Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing became household names, at least to horror fans. But as the years rolled on, we entered into the 1960s. And then the endless sequels that were getting churned out by Hammer. Hammer was an assembly line studio. Now, I mean, yes, you had good directors handling things like Terrence Fisher, and you had people with a good vision there that wanted to create quality product, but eventually, like anything, it becomes a machine that just sort of churns out stuff. And so the sequels are widely regarded for all the the Dracula series, the Mummy series, the Frankenstein series. They get progressively worse and more ridiculous as time goes on. Christopher Lee famously hated the Dracula series to the point where he refused to speak lines. In movies. <laughs> Which is awesome, especially when it devolves to disco. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, when they bring him to the 70s. But before they even did that, um, they had to make a big change. They had to do something. And the reason for that is, is what happened in the 60s? Night of the Living Dead happened. Rosemary's Baby happened. Real horror. <laughs> the new horror. The 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 entrance into the auteur directors. An actually scary horror Things that people had never seen before. They've been relying on great writers, household name actors, and Kensington Gore up until this point. And yeah, definitely gets old. It gets old for anybody. And as 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 we learn through the decades, what the, the most fascinating thing about horror for me and why people are like, why do you waste your time learning all of this knowledge? Hundreds, 100 years of horror. Why do you constantly go back to that? Because I feel... Like, horror is the perfect way to get the real sense of a decade. 
because the type of horror that gets made tells what's the public consciousness is what they're afraid of. What is the big noise? Either you're afraid of foreign people in far and away places, or you're afraid of the government, or you're afraid of your neighbors, or you're you know, afraid of infection. There's all kinds of things that people could be afraid of and what works and what doesn't. And the popular horror films of each decade clearly outline what the decades were kind of about. And so when you have uh, leftovers from previous decades, they just, they're not hitting the same chord. Hammer had one more trick up its sleeve. They wanted to try new and fresh ways to handle their standard properties. I mean, look, Lydia, all those foggy graveyards, I mean, we can't just, you can't just tear those down. You got to use them. <laughs> you can't just tear those down. No, they're forever. Graveyards are forever. Yeah. So. Cobwebs too. Cobwebs too. They, you never, you can't. That smoke stays in the air. Yeah, I know. Forever. It doesn't ever just settle. It doesn't blow away. So basically what they tried to do was they launched a new kind of vampire movie and it became part of a trilogy. But in 1970, they did The Vampire Lovers. And it was based off of the short story or the novella, Carmilla. And that book famously has like a lot of strong lesbian undertones. Embarrassingly, the first time I ever read the book, uh, I didn't even realize that the main character was a woman. I was Oh, like, that's amazing. I, <laughs> I was reading it. And, and and I was just like, oh, I see. Carmilla is clearly a female vampire. I was, I don't know. I, like, I don't know what I was reading because I listened to the audiobook and I'm like, yeah, clearly it's it's they're all women. But for and then I swear, like midway through the novella, I was like, oh, oh, they're it's both women. <laughs> That's kind of cute. I, I don't, and I, and I know that you aren't governed by the patriarchy of yesteryear. So I can't see that being it. Or you must have just thought that Carmilla was a very foreign name like Basil. Maybe. For a man. I, I was more just, I was young and easily confused. And to be honest, I was like, like reading it. Kind of, I'm not the best reader. No, and all she'd have to do is one manly thing. Like yeah. kill a chick, <laughs> I guess. And yeah. The Vampire Lovers isn't even the only vampire movie to uh, adapt Carmilla. In 1932, uh, the movie Vampiri is very loosely based off of the story. They take a lot of elements from it, and even in the, the credits, they reference the book that uh, Sheridan Lefanu's story, Carmilla, is in. And, and the, the story of Carmilla is really cool. I've always really liked it because in movies, people have noticed, uh, I'm sure by now, that I always like to go back to see the earlier stuff or where things started. And so when you say Dracula, I instantly go Carmilla. Because it was an older vampire story and inspired him, just much like Carmilla also inspired people like Anne Rice. A lot of vampire fiction started here, modern vampire fiction. I always take things kind of historically. So when people talk about Dracula, I think Vlad the Impaler. When people talk about Carmilla, yeah. I think Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah, yeah, naturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. always going back even further into historical influences that these authors must have had. Mm -hmm. And in turn, this um, fiction, this Regency horror influence like you're saying Anne Rice and people like that mm -hmm. or even um, Bram Stoker's son Dacre Stoker mm -hmm. to write even more Dracula mm -hmm. and then still influenced by history in that way mm -hmm. yeah totally um, and there's also uh, uh, Carmilla has been ad adapted into lots of other movies too uh, aside from just Vampiri there's uh, God 
Bordello of Blood? No, not Bordello of Blood, (laughs) although I suppose in a way you have... I like that movie, you shut up. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Roger uh, Vadim's Blood and Roses and uh, Blood Splattered Bride... These are movies that... Uh, Blood and Roses is one I haven't seen that I definitely want to now. Blood and Roses is uh, considered to be... It's a French film. Uh, I The uh, the French title is eluding me right now. But it's widely regarded as the best adaptation. Uh, if you can get your hands on the French version, there's a it's a 80-some-odd minute cut versus a 74-minute cut. And so you definitely want to get all the footage you can from that. The, and and this uh, Vampire Lovers being the first part of like a trilogy. And this was like Hammer's like, look, we can do a new kind of vampire story without Dracula. And we can also do what a lot of European cinema was doing at the time and push the sexual elements of it. Because they thought that was a way to get asses in the seats. <laughs> asses. It's true. <laughs> Bare asses in the seats and, and boobies in your hands. Uh, comparing this to the like, release right after it, Vampiros Lesbos, which is a far superior film, but same sort of idea. Mm-hmm. It's giving a, a fresh spin to historical female vampires and injecting a hell of a lot of sex. Yeah. Hell of a lot of nudity mm-hmm. and a lot of blood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of... Um, an interesting formula you wouldn't think would work on paper back then saying, you know, what we're going to do is revitalize Regency horror and add boobs to it. I, I couldn't see it flying on paper back then. So I'm in, it's interesting that it actually took off the way that it did. Not mm-hmm. from the fan perspective, but from the studio perspective. Yeah, from the studio perspective. Seems like a big gamble. Yeah, I, I, I mean, at that point, you're just grasping at straws, right? They're just anything, anything. Let's just keep producing things. Because they hadn't... They hadn't quite gotten to uh, Dracula 1972 just yet. This was... Uh, Speaking of grasping at straws. <laughs> yeah. Christopher Lee in big sunglasses isn't the worst thing in the world. No, but this uh, had the direct sequel of Lust for a Vampire 1971 in the same year. Because, like I said, this was... Hammer became a machine in the same year Twins of Evil came out. Mm-hmm. So, and that was... There was supposed to be more vampire... Uh, uh, Karnstein trilogy is what it's referred to as because that's the 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 family. There were supposed to be even more of them, but it just died as these things tend to do. They gave it the old college try. They did give it the old and college try. And it worked try. at first, definitely. Yeah. It it, it 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 revitalized things a little bit. Historically now people look back on this tail end era of Hammer kind of like the uh, like uh It's the most watchable though, this trilogy that in Vampire Lovers specifically is, I think, one of the more watchable Hammer Horrors of them all. Mm-hmm. Not including, like, Frankenstein and Dracula. Yeah, yeah. The I, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, the, the horror of Dracula and uh, Curse of Frankenstein, uh, The Mummy as well. Those those are pretty solid, I think, but I agree with everybody that the sequels got progressively worse. It became obvious. And then by the time your actors don't even want to be there, yeah, um, it, it's getting kind of ridiculous. But, of course... There's tons of other Hammer horror that wasn't gothic horror. There was stuff that was set in the modern era uh, and everything. I've covered a few on the website. So, uh, yeah. How did the Baskervilles was another set in that in that dreamy landscape without any vampires to speak of that I found as a kid when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I was extremely excited to watch it because I had enjoyed the story and had it read to me. 
And my God, was I bored. My God, was I bored. You know, even at 10 or 11 years of age, I think that movie would have probably benefited, and I would have benefited watching it if it had had tits. You know, The Hand of the Baskervilles is always one of those Sherlock Holmes stories that I like the title of it, and I like the idea of it, but when you actually sit down and watch that movie, or I've even read the the book, some of it, and I'm just like, it's just, this is just a great example of a great title. Yeah. Hound of the Baskerville. It just sounds so fucking good. Without vampires, this would be the cat of the Baskervilles. You know what I mean? <laughs> Poor Gustav. Cat of the Baskervilles. Yeah. Cat of the Karnsteins. It almost has a ring to it. Like Hound of the Baskervilles. Cat of the Karnsteins. <laughs> well, the movie starts off with a flashback of a dude fighting off a vampire. A very pretty vampire. And uh, she almost got to jump on him. In the way that these old vampire movies always do. They always kind of have the women, or anybody, go up to them with some sort of like otherworldly power. Yeah, usually just enchanting them. Yeah. Hypnotizing. While they... Um, go in for the kill but he had a cross on his chest which hit her bosom her ample bosom and well i just wanted to add that how could it have avoided it she gets within a <laughs> 10 feet of him and her tits are gonna hit his chest like <laughs> well it's not like a russ meyer film but i mean all the women are very beautiful and, and then you know we get our first big decapitation and they don't they're just like ah head chopping that's what this movie is all about yeah it really really puts you it shoves you in to that era and it shoves you into the gore that you're going to be expecting. Mm-hmm. And sexuality, right away. Yeah. This uh, movie follows quite faithfully the novella of Carmilla. And I'm so thrilled with the fact that I've actually like read this. I'm impressed, too. I'm impressed, too. <laughs> you know, I haven't read Carmilla. And if I did, it was a very long time ago in the mm-hmm. library at high school on my lunch break or something. Um, and I'm seeing parallels to Anne of Green Gables, which actually I read around the same time that sticks in my head which a little I didn't more know clear. What it was. Yeah, <laughs> I'd explain what Anne of Green Gables is, but that's fine. And I'm glad that you've read it. And you were saying that there is an audiobook actually contained on the Blu-ray. There, yeah. Um, uh, Ingrid Pitt, who plays the the role of the vampire lover, Carmilla herself, she uh, reads the book. It's cool. Which uh, is yeah, awesome. And if for those who aren't inclined to read the book or don't know where to source it you can probably find that anywhere or pick up the blu-ray mm-hmm. also uh i got to, i got a copy of it on audible.com which has like a really cool reading of it too cool um yeah, yeah plugging audible they didn't even pay me <laughs> <laughs> well they sponsor so many other podcasts right? oh they sponsor like every other podcast uh-huh. i like to thank our sponsors us and me lydia who worked so hard on the show. Thanks, guys. And uh, I'd like to especially thank our other, you know, partner, uh, my roommate's cat, who hasn't fucking interrupted us. Well, you you put him away. Yeah. But he was really good the last three episodes, so I'd like to formally thank him on the show. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Anyway, back to what we were talking about. <laughs> Sorry about that break for our sponsors that aren't sponsoring us, that sponsor every other podcast. But yeah, Audible does have some cool titles, that's for sure. But so does YouTube. Yes, true. This was the weird part about the story that I actually wanted to ask you the most about. Because just like in the book, Carmilla's M.O. is she presents herself along with her mother and rather... Her MILF, you mean? Yeah. 
one of her, someone who I assume in the book is a thrall of hers, like someone who's subservient to her, probably a vampire that she sired herself, or or like a a, a sophisticated ghoul. I'm not really sure what it would be, but um, and then and then she has a kind of a cadaverous manservant that seems to ride this the coaches for her and shit like that. So we start off at the general's party. The general in this is uh, Peter Cushing omnipresent in hammer horror this time not playing van helsing which i'm sure bothered him immensely now to explain the look on his face for this entire film <laughs> no that's just peter cushing's face stern <laughs> kind of annoyed to be there he's having a party they show up and all of a sudden this the the cadaverous fellow shows up at the door whispers something to the mother and then they have to be whisked away because a friend of hers is dying but in the meantime, could you, could my daughter? It's like we have to ride all night. It's going to be a, a, a huge journey. Could my daughter just? She doesn't even ask. He's just like I insist her daughter stay here he's, because she's already caught her meat hooks in everyone by staring everyone down and being hot. That's all she has to really do. Oh, and of course, people want her around. Yes, and uh, someone's I, already fallen in love with her. Basically, I suppose because we have, must be good to our neighbors or something. Yeah. But I mean, he has just met her. Had one dance with her. And yeah, I'll take care of your daughter. That's not so strange. But I mean, th- that that story progresses as a, as a way to showcase what Carmela does. She's not calling herself Carmela at this point. She's like Marcella. Hmm. And in the book, this is all told through a letter that's sent to the the Emma's family and stuff like that. Uh, and 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 you will meet the general. Uh, the, so you don't actually see, meet the general until much later into the to the story. But in this, they decide. You know, it's a movie. Let's show and not have people read a fucking letter because that's awful. Yeah, it does open with with the scene of the letter, so you do have that sort of setup. But yeah, but then you actually like seeing the scene. Anyways, um, through the magic of film, people don't have to ride on horseback for four days to get anywhere <laughs> to these country homes, and that's part of why. It should be so readily welcomed. But then, there the when we when she meets uh, with Emma's father, who by the way know the general's daughter and know the general, they were just at the party. They just left early because they had a long ride ahead. They're they're on their horses on their grounds. Camila's coach is going through the the roads such as they are because it's the olden days. The the cart tips. And there's a bit of a, I suppose, what would be considered like a, a crash in the olden <laughs> days. It's like where your stagecoach's like wheel gets stuck in the mud. Anyways, uh, Carmilla's in shock. She's too weak. She's very ill or something like that. In the book, they go into more detail explaining the fact that she is a very frail, ill, young girl. In the book, she's like a teenager, late teens or something like that. You know. Debutantes. Not unlike Anna Green Gables. Not a, I, I take your word for it. <laughs> now, they, she says, like, I have to keep going because someone I know, my brother is sick or my brother's dying or something like that. I have to keep going, but she's too weak. And then Emma's instantly like, you should stay with us. And so now literally a person that they picked up on the street is now a guest in their home. Let me ask you this, because this was this is what I really want to ask you. Is that olden day shit? That's mostly olden day shit, yes, totally. And coupled with the fact that she can hypnotize people at a glance. 
right? So she's using her vampiric power, obviously, to pull this grift that they're doing, this long con. It is con. a grift. Yeah. It's the long con. <laughs> That's exactly what they're doing. And I, I do agree with you that her mother, quote unquote, is probably just in yet another Renfield. Yeah. She's got this army of Renfield surrounding her. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, on the other hand, aside, like vampiric powers aside, it is an olden days thing. Uh, people would travel and be stuck or, you know, if the next train didn't come for four days, you would just stay. And someone would always offer partially out of Christian duty and partially just because it is a long, treacherous journey and they wouldn't want to, themselves to be stuck like that. Get eaten by wolves or something. Yeah. And if they're in a country home for like a month or two, their daughter is probably very fucking bored. So having a friend is is totally welcome. Oh yeah, it's, it seemed it's they seem to have that established already because it's like oh, before the general's daughter died, she was meant to go and visit Emma, and and so and they're very so it's like oh I'm going to be coming to visit, and you would assume that you would you got a sense from the dialogue that it would probably be a few weeks if not a month yeah where she's going to be staying with them, which is pretty typical. There was no like weekend getaways as much. Yeah, because like I guess it's like what do they do all day? They just like read and learn languages and needlepoint, man. Needlepoint. Needlepoint. <laughs> yeah. It's like the fucking hallucinogen of the 18th century. Or I guess 19th century. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now in their midst they have this woman, this young girl. Who's not really young because Ingrid Pitt is is an adult woman, but yeah. <laughs> but in the in, in the original story she's a young girl. Um, in this she's an adult woman. She instantly befriends Emma and they become quite close. Well, of course, and you know they're acting like eighteen year olds, and I'm sure even then in cinema there was the the passing ages and passing off thirty for twenty and twenty for fifteen and things like that. So. They behaved like 18, 19-year-old girls. Mm-hmm. So it's totally believable that they're going to have, like, sleepovers. Big month-long sleepovers. Yeah. Yeah. So Hammer wasn't fucking around when they decided that they were going to push the sexuality of this movie. Not that I would say anything is explicitly erotic, except for the fact that there's a lot of implication about certainly romance not romance but sex there's implication of sex and there's nudity in it um sometimes the nudity uh comes out of nowhere like at the beginning of the movie where it's just i'm gonna check this woman's heart to see if it's still beating so i'm just gonna undo her blouse entirely and and take it off it's not treated with a taboo though That's no it, it's it's very matter of fact and then even when uh Carmilla and emma are are getting dressed and they're sort of just like running around frolicking with their tops off. Um, I could see how that would be pretty alluring like back in the day, but not so much because I mean like. I feel that there was a certain amount of society watching that going like, well, I never and clutching their pearls as it were. (laughs) Yeah. And thinking that it's really, you know, titillating and it's, you know, sexy, super sexy. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a smaller faction of society that just behaved like that without the taboo and were like, yeah, this is the, the free love portion of the 70s, right? Where women should be able to gallivant topless. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to see, and if you're going to go see a movie, damn right, I want to see naked women. Yeah. Yeah. And it was treated like with a, with a certain element of innocence mm-hmm. too. So it, it makes it kind of sweet in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
It, it's it's just not, it's not raunchy. It's not. This no, it's seem not raunchy sle- at all. It doesn't seem sleazy at all. Yeah, and there's no overt sex. No. Yeah, and even what sex ish scenes happen, it's not like taboo, and it's not. Yeah, it's not raunchy. It's not sleazy. Mm-hmm. Everyone's kind of noticing that the, the ladies are getting close to the point in which Carmilla doesn't really want Emma to be around anybody else but her. Emma kind of feels the same way, but. And this is explored in the books, like the weird out uh, the books book the novella, the, where there's these weird parts where Carmilla will lose her shit, especially in discussion of men uh, re- marrying a man, being being in a proper relationship with a man, the funeral procession that happens where she becomes incredibly angry, and. She would become incredibly enraged and, and fierce looking and and then immediately switch back to being soft spoken and meek and and apologizing for losing her temper and you know, complaining about being fatigued. Or it's just that I love you so much. Yeah, that she it's loves you. It's just that I love you so much. Love you so much. Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. Creepy from, from where I sit. But I'm sure that girls sort of sequestered together like that in the countryside for weeks and months at a time would develop these very almost creepy, super close bonds. Although they'd be like sick of each other, right? Yeah, right. They'd be like, if I hear her voice one more time. I've seen friends operate on that level of closeness, though, definitely. And it's not that Emma's entirely resistant to it. She's just slow to come around, maybe. Um, uh, Emma herself has a, a very naive personality, played by uh, Meredith Smith, I think. Naive is nice. You were saying vacant earlier. <laughs> it's just very vacant. Okay, it's vacant. She's just the most doe-eyed woman I've ever seen in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, you're silly. What's going on? Which plays well when you're going to have a screeching harpy one second and a doting leech the next yeah yeah so there's another thing that i want to address about this movie which i think is the the weirdest aspect of it more than anything else more than the the sort of like the reused hammer sets and how everyone is kind of just like meandering through their roles and shit it's constantly constantly cutting back anytime anything vampiric happens anytime anyone's sad (laughs) yeah okay they cut to the dude on the horse who's a vampire just grinning like a moron with his vampire teeth he has no name right he has no name in the in the novella that character is represented as be as as, by a, a a very cadaverous manservant quite gaunt uh, even being described so much as like he looked ill or dead or something like that. Um, and so when I saw the movie, I was like, oh yeah, that's who this guy is. But in this, they're clearly saying, like they're clearly showing him with vampire fangs and like bright beaming eyes and a hat with a buckle on it. And, and he's like, I mean, he's a dandy. He's not like a revenant. He's not like decomposed looking or gaunt really. He's yeah, kind of like a gentleman. Yeah. Except he's just, he has like a pallor to him, like, it, like a ghostly pallor a little bit more than anyone else really. Especially and, like the drunk guys with big red noses. Yeah. It's like yeah. quite the opposite, but yeah. He has no name. He has no real description. He doesn't actually do anything. 
He stand his captain stand and stare. I don't know what he does. But maybe he does everything, Lydia. <gasps> Perhaps. Maybe he is the mastermind behind us all. Now you brought up an interesting theory about the inclusion of this character constantly. Yeah, and the only like I was grasping for an explanation for him because there's no explanation in the storyline. And I'm thinking, like, what what purpose would he serve for the audience? Because that's the only other reason to have him in there. Yeah. And so he's a, he's just a leftover for the bygone patriarchy, now bygone pa- patriarchy that was, you know, still very very present in film and storytelling back then. Where I don't think an audience would have 100% swallowed a story where a female vampires operating under 100% her own agency there needed to be some sort of male mastermind in the shadows and here we are with a male mastermind in the shadows because that's basically all that he does what he basically is is a guy that is overseeing her actions he's applauding her killing and Mm -hmm. he mourns her passing that's all he does he looks kind of creepily happy-ish when things are going bad for everyone else yeah and it's not till later on that he has kind of a stern, sorrowful look. And those are the only things he has is looks because he doesn't actually do anything. He doesn't interact with anyone. He basically stands on the hill and watches or stands in the shadows and watches. He could almost have been filmed at any time. from a, he could, th- Those literally could be scenes from another movie. Yeah, they really, really, truly could be. Because you would, if not for the one or two, the two fucking scenes he has, the one where... He's doing the griff on the general <laughs> and then the griff on uh, Emma's father and, and whatnot. And that's that's it. And then the rest of the time, he's just on a horse. And and sometimes they cut to him where it's like, where is he? What is he laughing at? How can he see them? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is going on? There was one part where Wes is like, it looks like he's not even involved in this whatsoever. And he's just remembering a funny joke someone told him. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, oh, 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 yeah. To the other side, <laughs> you say. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like in the crypt and they're all just like grim faced. And this is the vampire that I've been searching for. And they're all like sad. And he's like, <laughs> I don't get it. It's like leftover scenes from Dark Shadows or something. (laughs) That's what it strikes me as. But he serves absolutely no purpose. That is fucking crazy. And the idea that, yeah, like, it makes sense because I have no other fucking explanation for this character. I'd like to talk to a woman's studies uh, or a film studies person who specializes in women in film to talk about that uh amy vosper would be the number one candidate for that the girls at a faculty of horror may have some input on that um because watching it through today's eyes it's like what the fuck is this dude <laughs> what the fuck yeah. what is he watching her and approving of shit why do we need your fucking approval guy mm-hmm. get the fuck out of here that's my number one gut reaction to this character so that's the only purpose i can see it serving but it's so strange because in the original novella it's clear Carmilla is the boss. And he is her servant and yeah. plays as little of a role. Yeah. Once once th- that scene, uh, once she gets into the house for the second time, that's it. He's They're, not needed. That's it. It's, it's done. I so, guess for the audience of the 70s, 1970 proper, he was needed, quote unquote, so that the audience wouldn't just dismiss her. Unfortunately. 
Like, what Bond girl actually operates under their own agency? I don't know. Do they? Do they really? Christmas Jones? (laughs) Okay. Okay. Some Bond girls do. That's what I liken it to, that there's, you know, she's going to appear to be her own woman, but there's going to be a guy pulling the strings in the background. Yeah, and it's so fucking out there because it's 2016 and I'm watching this movie and I'm just like, I don't get this. What's this guy? You wouldn't have noticed it in 1970. I guess not. You wouldn't have even noticed it at all. And we both noticed it right away. But then, like, it drives me crazy. I mean, I know this movie has a sequel, two uh, sequels. One, The, the second, uh, Lust for a Vampire, uh, is, is more of a direct sequel. But it's like, if they don't, in my mind, if I was watching this movie not knowing that there would ever be another one, I'd be like, well... Are they going to kill that vampire then? Is if he's the if he is the head vampire? Yeah, shouldn't they be hunting him down? Yeah, what difference does it make? Essentially, it would almost be like. Well, they we... don't know. See, the s- sequels should have followed him making more Carmillas. Yeah, really. If that's the role he was really playing, but obviously not. So I think that he was really just a device for the audience. I really, really think so. It, it, it's just baffling to me. And honestly, it, it those scenes pull me out of the flick a lot. I like this movie. It, in terms of Hammer, I, I find it like utterly watchable. And I love the story of Carmilla, so I'm totally down. But that's the kind of one scene where if I was watching it with somebody new, I'd be kind of embarrassed. Because I'd be like, <laughs> oh, they're so dumb. Yeah, just ignore this guy. <laughs> yeah, just ignore this guy. He is irrelevant. Yeah. What is not irrelevant is the fact that... Uh, Oh, man, they start smelling something's up. And it's not just garlic flowers? It's not just garlic flowers because a good doctor shows up and one of the manservants that looks like he's like a fucking, he's like a bad guy out of a fucking Disney cartoon with super pointy eyebrows and shit. Yep. Very sneering face. But he's a good guy for now Mm -hmm. because the Countess was on board with, uh, you know, keeping... Emma safe and the house in order in, in good order, but uh, when old Carmela feels that there's like an obstacle in her way, uh, she it, things get sexy. Things get sexy. You mean people get dead? Well, yeah, but she somehow they don't specify how she's fully putting them under her spell, but it seems to have something to do with her being naked because she makes the countess come into her bedroom and turn down the light while she undresses and then seem missing now it's the easiest way to get someone's attention i mean if i want people to get away from me i could take my clothes off but not to like do what i say i have to be fully clothed for that or be a vampire i know but i'm not a vampire i'm just like a really pale dude with no clothes on you're also not like a super hot 20 year old chick that's hurtful (laughs) well it's just a fact and she is and it is a way to get somebody's attention it's true. I think that's most of the device if you need to explain it, other than just because we want naked women. Now that the Countess is in her control, she can move about freely. One of the interesting, speaking of moving about freely, something to note, and this is present in the novella as well, but the vampires in this universe can operate during the day. The thing about them, though, is they are weakened in the daytime. Yeah, they don't like the sun. She does stay out of the sun, and she's questioned about it, and she just says she doesn't like it, if I recall. It's it's too bright. It hurts her eyes. Yeah, it hurts her eyes. Mm -hmm. Which is believable, you know? And they're also passing off a lot of these symptoms in Emma as anemia, and in her previous friend 
um, that red meat is all she needs. Yeah, green stuffs, red meat. Get some blood back in. Which I've been actually told that. So you know, I know how I know how it feels. I know how it feels to have your vampirism confused with anemia. It's annoying. It's annoying. I mean, it's hard to believe that you operate on a handful of like cashews a day, but I eat more than that. I eat more than that. You know, I have Emma upstairs, stuff like that. Oh God. Um. But, of course, having them operate in the daylight and having those excuses, which are uh, very feminine excuses back then, to want to retain uh, pale skin and not be sunburned and things like that, you could easily get away with explaining your vampirism away with things like wanting to stay out of the sun because it hurts your eyes or being pale because you're anemic and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they just naturally jump to those conclusions anyway, so that's mm-hmm. kind of helpful. I like that they operate in the daylight because I've obvi- like had enough of the night vampires that turn into bats. These are day vampires that turn into cats in your dreams, mm-hmm. basically. And it's refreshing. I-, I could see it being very refreshing back then, too. Yeah. Yeah. It is real cool. That is, um, at night, uh, Camilo's door is always closed and locked, but... Uh, Emma keeps having horrible visions of a giant cat that's laying across her chest, visiting her every night. Um, you know, shape-shifting powers of a vampire. And the fur in her mouth. Ugh. Ugh. Yuck. If you could imagine a cat, like, sleeping on your face trying to kill you. I would scream in fear, too. Yeah, it's something like that. Of course, everything's explained away, just like not wanting to go in the sun is explained away with it hurting your eyes and weakness and paleness and lethargy and exhaustion is explained with anemia. The cat visions are explained away with Gustav, the family cat. Well, it's a hell of a lot more easy to believe that there's a cat in the house and you woke up in the middle of the night terrified because you saw a cat and we have a cat. So that's (laughs) the cat that you saw. Good night. Yeah. And you're <laughs> pale and wasting away because you have anemia too. Yeah. Um, this, is a, this is a place where they even say that the problem with this country is that there's far too many superstitions. So they're not jumping to the conclusion of superstitions, which they sort of should historically. Mm-hmm. You know. But the good doctor that comes to the house says firmly that he believes in science, not superstition. That is, of course, a ruse because he has seen these symptoms before he knows that there is a vampire stalking and he goes so far as to insist that the 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 countess cannot be trusted the manservant uh sees to that and then he uh whose name is escaping me right now and then uh they go on to put the garlic flowers into the broom and put a cross. Yeah, the doctor specifically rifles through her belongings to find uh, a cross. To put I, I love that he was just like, every everyone has a cross. Where is it? <laughs> it's not, it's, it's not a stretch, man. I have a cross in my room. I have a rosary, a glow-in-the-dark rosary, and a black beaded one. So if anyone ever needed to protect me from a vampire, which I heard you to not, um, you could easily throw a cross on my... Someone will reach over to you trying to put the cross on your neck and I'll be like, no, she wants to die this way. (laughs) Get those garlic flowers out of her room. (laughs) Which is a nice touch, actually. It's a really nice touch. And Allium, the um, genus, I believe, of 
oh, onions and garlics and stuff like that do have really pretty flowers. So anyone watching this that isn't into horticulture and looks at these and goes like, oh, yeah, sure, garlic flowers, right? Okay, no, those are really garlic flowers, and they're really, really pretty. They look a lot like um, Lily of the Valley mm. in a way. Very pretty, and they smell amazing. So that's one of my favorite devices. And they have, like, a, copious amounts of garlic flowers. I guess they came from the kitchen, because if you're thinking a huge country home kitchen with servants and stuff... They're probably growing their own garlic, so mm-hmm. I like that. They're probably Gretchen's own uh, flowers. Probably. I dig Gretchen. And I dig the whole, like, tug of war they're playing over these stupid garlic flowers. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite. It's almost comedic, in yeah. a way. It's, like, the closest thing to comedy you're going to find in this at all. Mm-hmm. The Countess does not, obviously, she's under the influence of Carmilla. And so she herself is repelled by these uh, garlic flowers. Not in as much of a violent way. They don't walk in the room and hiss and back up in the corner and screech, <laughs> get those flowers out of here. Not quite that bad. They're just like, ooh, those flowers smell terrible. Could you take them out? And they're like, oh, no, the doctor wants them in. Oh, I, yeah, but they're, no, she doesn't like them. Yeah. You're going to upset her. They're so sly. That's mm. one thing I have to hand to these vampire ladies is that they're super sly. They're very quick liars. And and you get a sense, especially from Carmilla, that she has had to explain away these affects for so long that the second anyone questions questions her about any of it, it just uh, like the lie just rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. She's just so used to being like, "Oh, garlic flowers," and she's thinking again. Yeah. And I never, I never thought about the fact that they are doing like a long con. Like they really are like pretty grifty. Like because, because in a lot of other like, this is like a, a weird instance. Like Dracula is all about you're going to Castle Dracula. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're like, on his turf. You're going to his place. Camilla is all about like letting her into your home. And she's just sort of like traveling around. And you would assume that she goes through these country homes all over the place for centuries. This is an era where there would be like traveling grifters in a way, but more people were wise to it. And it was usually men mm-hmm. or families. Mm-hmm. But to have like a single chick kind of abandoned in a way that mm-hmm. has a mother. So you're, you know, she's sort of um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy-ish in a way where Mm-hmm. She knows where her towel is. So you're going to trust her because if she has a towel, then she must have like money, a place to call home, a toothbrush, and all the other amenities that come along with having a towel. Uh, her mother, quote unquote, is sort of her towel in a way, which right away forces people to trust her. So she can, she could pull this for eternity in a mm-hmm. way. She could probably pull this even today. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if everyone was so pretty. Yeah, yeah, the prettiness helps. And just being a vampire and just being able to enthrall everybody. Mm-hmm. That certainly helps, too. She could really, obviously, just walk up to a front door and knock on it and stare at someone and open her shirt, and the same movie would play out. I'd love her. Yeah, far more fun. And she can fly under the radar and may not be chased out of town with pitchforks and torches mm-hmm. if she does this a little more sly. Yes. I've subtitled this movie now, Grifters. um by the time by the time uh, everyone realizes that shit's going down uh they're trying to get the doctor back they're trying to keep emma safe and they're trying to really figure out they know they don't know it's camilla 
but they think that they know for sure that the countess is under some sort of influence uh this uh, manservant guy he is represents the last solid obstacle in front of carmila's way and so what do you do when there's a, a big strapping man in your way you seduce him you seduce him also because he's really put two and two together He's following the doctor's orders. He believes in science. He knows that she's frail and weak and there's something desperately wrong with her. Mm-hmm. And he also hints that perhaps the Countess isn't human. He's the first one to really call them out to mm-hmm. their faces. It's true. So yeah, so do some. But then he changes his tune to the tune of get that cross off her neck and get these flowers out of here. <laughs> Yeah, pretty quickly. Because Camilla bites his ear and gives him some smooches. Yeah, she's cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Renfield number five. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, She really is a fucking mastermind. She really has tons of people that she just takes control of. All for this one person. Throughout the movie, she's killing other people to feed on. But not Emma. For some reason, and they touch on this in the novella. And I wish I could remember it verbatim, but I can't. But I do know that because of the vampire's compulsion, something to do with their compulsion, there is always one person that they will single in on and it becomes imperative for them to, it would be, it's it's important for her to, for Emma to give herself over fully because it's not. It's like, oh, yes, you're going to be my lover and my companion for all time. I will sire you and and we will be vampire lovers for eternity. Yeah, this isn't a Louis and Lestat need someone to hang out with. No, it's not that whatsoever. It really is just the long con of I'm going to eat this girl. But for some reason, they need this. They need the artifice around it. Yeah, because she's the stew that you cook for two days. Not the bag of sweet chili heat Doritos that you devour in four seconds. <laughs> uh, I'm hungry enough right now that that is like a super satisfying reference. <laughs> sweet chili heat Doritos? Yeah, I could do yeah. that. I could do that for sure. But that's sort of what the other people are like. They're just sustenance to keep her from, you know, looking any more pale or going any more animalistic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But... It is also like kind of maybe a fringe benefit where she gets some of the psychic um, mm-hmm. feeding as well because she's feeding off of this emotion and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Or maybe the blood tastes better when someone's in love with you. I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah, it's fascinating. But now that the whole house is under her control, except for Gretchen, because she doesn't really need to take her, she doesn't really need to take over Gretchen because she could basically just tell her what to do and she'll just. Do that little curtsy thing. And... I love Gretchen. Gretchen's awesome. <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a, she's like a prefab Renfield. She's just going to do whatever anyone tells her to do. Yeah, yeah, pretty Which... much. Meanwhile, all the all the frilled cuff gentlemen with their capes and buckle hats are plotting because they have found a flashback. The flashback vampire hunter. They have found a flashback. <laughs> we found a flashback thanks to them meeting up with, yeah, the original Fala, who was the first time that we saw these sexy vampires mm-hmm. and just what end they need to be meeting. And he had 
sort of enchanted them in a way by secreting a shroud away, knowing that they'd have to come and collect their shroud lest anyone see them in their proper form of rotted corpsey revenants, right? And so he knows their gig, and he tried to destroy every single one of them, and he relays them what had happened to him and mm-hmm. how he'd almost lost his resolve because those vampires are so sexy. They're so sexy, and they're so numerous. And But it was all for the re- revenge of his sister's death because that's who who the, the his the victim in his life was was yeah. his sister yeah um and so he said for hours he was he found the the karnstein's family crypt i guess or plot or whatever you want to call it yeah and he just for hours dug up their bodies and killed slaughtered them. every last one of them except for one. Oh yeah the one he couldn't find which is strange to me but I get it. You're sleepy. I get tired sometimes, too, and I'm just like, eh, I'll get it later. Yeah. So decades later, because he was a young man when he was doing this, he's an older, he's a white-haired gentleman now, they finally are going to zero in on Carmilla. And they know it's her because there's a painting of her. Now, the painting, in, to me, does not look anything like the actress playing the vampire. But whatever. I know. It's a lady. It is a lady. It's a lady. But not all ladies look the same, Lydia. No, you're right. No, nah, she doesn't look really, really similar. But if that's what the placard on the painting says, that's who she is. Mm-hmm. I, I often doubt that, you know, like Edgar Allan Poe looked as much like the famous photo of him because anyone can look one particular way in a still, in a painting, or in a photograph, and that's not exactly how they look. So, whatever. It's a lady, and the placard says it's her. Yes. So and now, like any, like any, sorry, but like any good vampire story or where any story where someone lives a thousand million trillion years or like in that He Never Died film with Henry, Henry Rollins, which is actually really, really good, but he never died. Spoiler alert. He never died. And there's a part where they show a photo of him from way, way back in the day and he looks exactly the same. Whether he looks exactly the same or not, his name is on it. You know it's him. I love that device in all of these films where someone is immortal or just has super longevity. And there's an old, 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 tiny photo or painting of them. And that's when everyone has the aha moment. My mom was really into uh, photography when we were kids. And she used to set up photos where we were like in costumes, like straight up, like we're costumed. Mm -hmm. And she took old black and white photos of us. And I was dressed up like a kid from like the 20s, like sitting on like, like, and me and my brother were both dressed up like this. And I had like... Like I looked like a fucking extra from like Newsies. Like, I like need to see this suspenders photo. and white button up shirt and like the slacks tucked in and yeah. And I'm I'm probably like maybe nine or ten years old or something like that. And I always thought that like I just want to like l- like when I die I'm gonna leave that photo somewhere. Like I'm gonna write on the back of it like is it like West Snipe 1924. It's like, how old was he? Oh, man. I want to take that photo of my uh, great-grandmother, Annie Lorena Storm and George Storm. It's their wedding day. and they're so It's their wedding day, so they're dressed in the most goth black outfits you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And she looks almost exactly like me. I totally want to write Lydia Peaver, 1898. That'd be, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
just as little little grifts to like leave people like uh, after I die. I always think that's like amazing. That is hilarious. I always thought like like the people to kill, and you put like famous people that have actually died before you, and you like cross their names out. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> oh no! That's going on the back of that photo too. <laughs> Walt Disney. <laughs> I would never. Really? You would kill Walt Disney? I just assumed you would. No! Why would you assume I'd kill Walt Disney? He was a friend to animals. Eh, I learn something new every day. <laughs> this just in. Lydia would not kill Walt Disney, given the chance. No, hell no. <laughs> anyway, back to this movie. <laughs> um, One scene uh, d- d- towards the end where Carmilla is... Uh, fa- Emma has a boyfriend, like you do. And... He's cute. He's pretty cute. Yeah. He goes to fight Carmilla. Now, in the book, this is a lot cooler. I don't even think it's uh, him that does it. I think it's the general. But this guy works because he's not he's underutilized up until this point. I it's, true. Yeah. it's true. It's true. I I have no quarrel with that. My quarrel really is with the fact that I'm a big anime fan, and the way that it was described in the original novella really had like my brain. Going to love this was animated. I know exactly how I want it to look, and and like the idea of of um, Carmilla has been presented at this point. She has a uh, ferocity to her when she becomes angry, but it's almost kind of like when people are like, "Ha ha ha!" She's so cute when she's angry because she's like a small, frail woman, right? The people say that type of bullshit. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, in the novella, it's the first time she ever displayed. A massive amount of physical prowess. Sort of like the cat that she comes to Emma at night as, in the guise of. So you're almost expecting this explosive big cat energy to come. Or like we said in the Hell House episode where with a haunted house film, you're mostly watching it waiting for the house to freak out because you know it's gonna. Or with vampire films specifically... They might be, you know, a proper dandy and seducing everyone or whatever it is that they do or dancing in the club or whatever vampires do. But you're holding out for that moment where where they see a cross or whatever it is that brings out that animalistic nature, the vampire in them. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be like crawling backwards up the wall, hissing at you and fucking bleeding blood out their eyes. You want to see them display their power. Yeah, exactly. And because in the book... Uh... It, she's swiped out with a sword. It, it hits nothing but air. So, like, I don't know if it's speed or if it's like an ethereal quality, but it, it was described in the book as she was there one moment, gone the next. And she grabs uh, the guy by the wrist and just twists it. And then just the, like, one handed with, like, her, and it was described her dainty wrist, one handed, just twists this grown man's arm up and he drops his weapon. And then. Um, he, uh, he suffered, a, a permanent loss of feeling where she grabbed him. So she has like superhuman strength, alacrity, and like a Medusa touch. Yeah. So it all sounds fucking awesome. Yeah, I know. So, and, and what you would expect from an older vampire, like you would expect like, yeah, let's, I want fucking powers, man. Powers. Yeah. Um, and, and so in this movie, I mean, they don't, it's fine, but I just. You're being polite. It's. It's just, it's more of like a struggle and she doesn't really seem to have more physical power than another anybody else would. That's a very human. The only real power she displays here is the ability to dissolve. She could dissolve. And, yeah. and I mean, it's done in a very 
meh sort of way. Kind of cute. <laughs> yeah, it, it's I'm just. I'm fading. Look at me. <laughs> sexy <laughs> yeah it's it's it, so it's not nearly as cool and then the next time we see her she has returned to the crypt because they always do that and i want to like i i know you're not like a, a fucking massive vampire expert and you know all the little details but i think you know more than me what is it about even though carmilla knows that people are after her and the what the uh, the forces of good are, are circling around them why return to her crypt to sleep. Where does, everyone knows where she'll be. Does she absolutely have to do that? Because vampires are dumb. Dumb as a post. Because no. it's like all vampires do that. I like, think uh, she she has just given you the only real display of power, powerful power, by dissolving. So she's weakened. And she hasn't been feeding because people have been in her fucking way. So she is growing weak. And like most vampires need to recharge, as it were, by sleeping, going into torpor, or digging themselves into the, the ground. Their ancestral grave dirt usually perks them up a little bit. Um, and you were saying that there is something that is also omitted from this story that is in the novella that would explain how she would need to go into her crypt to regain power. Yeah, in the novella, it's described that inside of her crypt, the coffin specifically, she actually is resting in uh, a few inches of standing blood. Just it's a it's just full of blood. The coffin itself. Yeah, and she's been too busy trying to get back into Emma's room, basically, and trying to ward off everyone that's trying to get in her way now, or anyone that's figured her out. So she's probably just really tired, and she kind of goes into a hive mind, I think. It's the only way that I would explain it. Um, as far as vampires go in literature, they would typically need to recharge at this point. And the best place to do that is this combination of ancestral grave and blood. And they do kind of like revert to this animalistic instinct. And that's her instinct to go there, unfortunately, which is most vampires downfall. Almost every vampire does die because of their instinct and it's drawing them back into somewhere where they need to recharge. I um, read, uh, read, I watched a really funny YouTube uh, video uh, by the dudes at Cinemassacre that do all kinds of videos. And one of them was like vampires having too many weaknesses, like too many weaknesses. And so he literally sat there and, and, and listed Every weakness from across all like movies and but anything, particularly the Hammer series, because there's so many things that like Christopher Lee's Dracula would be adherent to that are fucking ridiculous. And and so when when he was done, he was like, these things are weaker than humans. Like they, yeah. like they they are weak to more things than we are. They're even weaker than weak humans. <laughs> they are. So it's pretty crazy to me. I just think that, like, for me, that was the, that's always the thing about vampire literature I find the hardest to swallow, is the fact that they constantly have to go back to the grapes. Now, I know not every writer puts that in there. It's... That or they get a really work around it by having them have some sort of amulet or them bringing grave dirt with them by the boxcar or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. That there's some sort of touchstone that they can recharge or just not using that device whatsoever. Yeah. A lot of times uh, some of the vampire stuff that seems to work 
best in terms of making vampires seem more ferocious and powerful is just provided they're feeding. Like, like provided they, they are getting blood as sustenance somewhere, they should be able to... Because blood is power. Yeah, even if they're eating rats, it seems to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Eating rats or... Yeah, just not using those devices at all. Mm-hmm. Especially since this is a not fed that regularly day walking vampire. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the only thing that she has that recharges her. Maybe. She's but it is definitely her undoing. And in a move that I think Peter Cushing was like, look, I've been Van Helsing in 140 movies. I don't even know who you are. I don't want to know your name. It doesn't matter. I'm Peter Cushing. I insist that I kill the vampire. He probably read the whole script and saw that he didn't and was like, I think that there's one little thing you overlooked here. I'm Peter Cushing and I'm not killing the vampire. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I basically need to like hold my hand to my chin and talk about vampire lore. Because it seemed like, because like every scene that those guys were together, like it just seemed like Peter Cushing was just like, why is he saying my lines? He's like, mansplaining vampires to me? <laughs> that is the look he's giving for the, like, for every time the guy is talking about vampires for the last, like, 20 minutes or so. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, I know. I know. Van Helsing. <laughs> he's not really Van Helsing. But I mean, it's hard to, like, it's Hammer Horror, it's Peter Cushing, and so I'm like, of course he's fucking Van Helsing. And he lives up to that. Yeah. Thank gosh, because there was a distinct lack of blood in the last, you know, half of this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That blood in the coffin thing would have been really cool if oh, they had done that. I know. That. When you told me about that, I like, because I don't think I've read this story. And if I did, like I said, it was ages ago. And superseded by the historical Elizabeth Bathory, which is way more interesting to me. Mm, yeah, no, I understand. Um, that would have been extremely cool, especially with that super red blood they use. That would oh, have yeah. Been really, oh, yeah. really cool. But, oh, well. And now I'm, I'm curious to see. Uh, we, we did a little bit of research looking to see if any other vampire story uses that device. Because, like, sitting in a little bath of blood, that's kind of picturesque, kind of romantic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it would explain why she has to return to her grave other than just drawing up power from her ancestral dirt. Mm-hmm. The final device, too, the painting, the morphing. Now, they sell those uh, holographic pictures that on, you can get those. Uh, on Halloween, yeah, yeah. little novelty hologram pictures that are that do about the same thing. Uh, I thought that was a really nice touch, too. Sort it's of almost like, like the... Dorian Gray. Por- yeah, I was going to say the portrait of Dorian Gray. Yeah. It was very similar to that. It was very cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to have to get a painting commission someday. Just like a withered version of yourself? No, a fresh version of myself. Oh, oh. Yeah. So when I do wither, people will remember what I look like. I thought that it was supposed to be like... It will age for me? Well, the the portrait in in Dorian Gray, it's it's like what he actually looks like, right? That's why he can't look at the painting? Yeah, it's basically aging for him in a way. And yeah, that's why he can't look at it. Because if he does, then he'll just crumble like he does. But um, I got carded last night. And you would think that the guy had been looking at a... When he looked up at me from my ID, that he had looked into that withered portrait. Because his eyes just about popped out of his fucking head. I don't know how old he thought I was, but shit. It was funny. 
He shows you a picture of your license and you turn to dust. (laughs) Now that would be funnier than putting my name on the back of that photograph over there. I gotta figure out how to crumble the dust. (laughs) What do we got next for them? Uh, Coming up next is Sleepaway Camp. Oh, it's a little cold out, but we're going to do a camp slasher anyway. It's one of our fan requests that we're going to do. Yeah, it'll warm us up a little bit. Yes. And I want to get into something a little more contemporary with May. It should be interesting times. You guys wanted us to talk about a specific horror movie. On the show, you can tweet us at uh, deadair 1 or you can message us on SoundCloud or our Facebook page or uh, spotterpictures.net. We actually got a laundry list from a fella. Uh, of movies that he was suggesting that we do. Yeah, so. thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, we'll definitely take all requests into consideration. He also hosts a podcast, which I'm going to have to check out. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to another new one that is somewhat similar, and they actually have covered May recently, Dead Hour. So I'd like to say hello to Dead Hour podcast out there as well. Oh, hello. Hello. As far as other podcasts, too, that I would like to say hello to is This Is Horror Podcast, which is a horror fiction podcast that I've been listening to a hell of a lot of lately. And I'd like to say thank you to everyone that has checked out my postings on the Horror Writers Association new releases page because I had to do quite a bit of cleanup. If you notice that I mentioned on the Flatliners episode where I'd sort of neglected that while Mm -hmm. we had some family difficulties that we were working through. Um, I've cleaned up the whole (laughs) Horror Writers Association new releases page and we've got everything up to the most recent 2016 releases up there now and it's being shared quite often on Twitter and on my Instagram so thanks a lot for that yeah and uh, do yourself a favor you guys are interested in all and some cool horror stories please 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 check it out and now you're finding that shit off like crazy. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of cleaning up to do. And horror.org just had a full redesign. So mm-hmm. all the elements that we're all used to are still there on the site. But it looks a lot better. It just looks a lot cleaner. And I really enjoy being able to curate that rotating strip of really cool eye candy horror fiction release cover art because i think that's you know same with videos i would go into a video store and judge films on their cover art if i didn't know what they were about i do the same thing in bookstores too that's why i can spend an hour in a bookstore especially with like old the old like yellow spine 70s horror i love those covers and it's the same sort of thing and the art is actually getting better and better even though there's a lot more independent authors involved and their art used to be traditionally less cool than all the large publishing houses like Random House and uh, Sam Hain and Tor. Now they've really upped their game. So mm-hmm. you can get even cooler art from independent authors. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Speaking of independent authors, I want to say another thank you to Vine Torture Cast for mentioning my story Crocodile Rot on the show a couple shows ago. Um, there's been some attention for that too because of the movie Red Crocodile coming out mm-hmm. eventually about this. Finally, somebody's using that horrible crocodile drug as uh-huh. a device in horror, and I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. And in the same day that that show aired, where Chris mentioned Crocodile Rot, a friend of mine who's in Vancouver messaged me that they had met a girl in a bookstore, which I love, and she was looking at my book. And he was just like, 
holy shit. And like, here's a great opportunity to totally impress this chick, right? But no, he um, saw this girl looking at Nightface and was like, hey, yeah, I know that. I know the girl that wrote that, which is just so random and so precious to me. And not only did he not convince her to buy the book, but help her decide to buy the book, he told her all about like my back catalog and other stories and specifically Crocodile Rot. So twice in one day, randomly, separate ends of this continent, someone was talking about Crocodile Rot. So thanks, guys. That's really fucking cool, and congratulations on that. The idea that you have your books in bookstores, and people are talking about them, and people are kind of picking your bones for movies, that's cool. Yeah, pick my bones. Picking your bones. No, that's awesome. It just proves that you're ahead of the curve. Or maybe I've enthralled them like a vampire lover with my eyes and my, well, not my boobs. That's gross. <laughs> I'm keeping my shirt on. Thanks. No, no, no. Let me thank you for that. You are so welcome. I'm going to clutch my pearls. <laughs> On that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.